Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. I'm Dr. Isha Desai. Now, even though the practice of medicine has changed enormously in the past 100 years, the way medicine is taught is largely the same. Long lectures held on elite campuses and urban centers. And our guest on Raise the Line today, Dr. Peter Hornifer, is out to replace that antiquated and costly sage-on-the-stage lecture model with an experience that uses learning science and modern technology to make medical education much more accessible to more aspiring physicians in more places, especially underserved areas. He's currently pursuing that goal, which he hopes will help address the global physician shortage. As executive dean of the All-American Institute of Medical Sciences in Jamaica and as director of medical education programs at Lecturio, which sums up its mission nicely as quote, teaching evidence-based medicine in an evidence-based manner. He gave a very compelling TEDx talk about all of this last year, and we're going to include a link to that video in the episode summary. Peter, thank you so much for being with us today. And, and thank you um, for, for inviting me. Um, wonderful having these uh, podcasts and, and uh, abilities to share experiences and, and information. So I'm so curious to ask you this first question. You were well into your career working as a cardiothoracic surgeon in Maryland. Then you find yourself in independent Samoa, pioneering the use of online curriculum to teach medicine. I, I want to know, how did you kind of make that big leap and what sparked your interest in reimagining medical education in the first place? Well, as, as perhaps with, with many big leaps, it didn't start as a big leap. It started in large part uh, as uh, due to a certain measure of serendipity. Um, heart surgeons work together as teams, and um, we get very dependent on our co-practitioners. And my lead physician's assistant announced uh, that uh, she had signed up for um, medical school. And I was very sorry to see her leave. And she said, no, I'm not leaving. I'm, I'm going to continue working while I'm doing this. And I said, that's impossible. And so I looked into it and um, she had joined an innovative uh, program. And, and to put this in context, at the time that this program was being put together, the internet itself was something, at least in, in medicine, that was uh, still um, highly underutilized and relatively new. And the idea was to, to use um, internet-based resources to bring uh, didactics to underserved areas. Uh, the focus was in independent Samoa, the former New Zealand protectorate, not American Samoa, that had was was greatly underserved from a physician perspective. Um, I believe there were something like nine physicians for the entire country of uh, three, four hundred thousand. And whenever students left who had promised to go to medical school in New Zealand or elsewhere often, they didn't come back. So the idea was to bring the um, education to them. It was funded by a U.S.-based philanthropist and educator uh, on the premise that it would also be available to healthcare practitioners in multiple continents, Australia, New Zealand, and uh, the U.S. And I inquired about the program. I was intrigued by its possibilities and asked to help shape the program and ultimately took a leadership role as executive dean. And it was, I believe, the first uh, program to be accredited um, based on a, an online didactic uh, program. Hmm. Given how that went, 
what are the biggest takeaways you've had as it relates to the challenge of providing medical education in remote areas around the world? And and how are you applying those lessons in your work at uh, the All-American Institute of Medical Sciences in Jamaica? Right. Well, excellent question. And, and I can also follow up uh, really uh, more completely answer your first question. Um, so my takeaway was twofold. Personally, I thought this was fascinating. This to me was the new frontier. And I thought a terrific opportunity to develop and, and diversify my, my experience and expertise. It was greatly rewarding that we got accreditation and even more so than the accreditation, the success of those that we trained, we educated and, and led to full licensure in Australia, New Zealand, the US, and most importantly, in Samoa, um, the workforce. The, the other corollary that was wonderful to see is that as we took a community of practicing physicians and built an academic environment I felt that we also had helped contribute to the quality of care being given. And, and you'll see if anybody is interested in, I outline this in the TED Talk, if you have to answer questions from students or residents, it pushes you to a level beyond your normal uh, due diligence of staying up to date. And you know, I'm sure you've seen this in your, your practice. You, you know, you can get very complacent. I know that, but when, when people start, young, young students and residents ask questions, it ensures that you stay sharp. So I think putting educational centers in remote areas not only produces healthcare providers, but it improves the level of care for that community in a broader sense. That makes a lot of sense, especially as I'm thinking of kind of didactic knowledge and the stuff that you learn kind of in your preclinical years. And, and I'm curious if you can kind of walk me through how things work as you're setting up clinical rotations for medical students in these remote areas uh, in their more clinical years. One of the, the interesting things with this program is that obviously Samoa is remote and we also had some students from um, Tonga and Fiji and other islands, but we also had students from remote parts of the US and even some not so remote parts. And the key is that there are patients and hospitals all over the United States that are underserved, all over the world that are underserved. And typically there are physicians that are willing to help um, provide experience and sort of skills-based expertise. But what they're often reluctant to do is give lectures, formulate exams, do the administrative part of it, and, and really the didactic. And this is where um, technology really has its forte. You can bring in that expertise. And so all the students in that program and the program I presently run, will, we rely on a platform or a central sort of technology hub to help augment didactics and track performance. So going off of that, I guess, what do you think are some pillars of modern learning science, you know, in terms of tracking and, and other ways that we keep students at the edge of their learning curve uh, that aren't being used in traditional medical education that are actually being used by, by your approach? Well, and that is also a very important part of what I believe is a crucial transformative process 
to education that hopefully has gotten a big shot in the arm, not just from vaccines, but to get everybody learning and teaching more effectively. There's a tremendous body of literature out of learning science. And I know you have shared it with people. A lot of what we need to do uh, at least those of us you know, interested in education is to help teachers at large understand that there's a defined science behind what works and what doesn't work. There's a methodology and we really ought to start applying it. And you mentioned the saying we have at Lecturio to teach in an evidence-based fashion. And this really resonates. One of the things that I am particularly passionate about um, in cardiac surgery, there's very little that I do that I'm not expected to be able to point to a particular study or research. I, I can't just take somebody and, you know, put in three bypasses or a valve or, you know, because I feel like it or because my, my mentors thought it was the right thing to do. We have data to show that this does help and there are risks to surgery, but the benefits outweigh the risks. I think we need to take the same approach in education. What works, what doesn't, study it and apply what works. And we don't have all the answers, but there are foundational strategies that, that do work and we're using very few of them. You know, one of the things that I found really interesting is this Fauci effect. You know, they say that because of the pandemic, more and more people are applying to medical schools in the U.S., kind of inspired to get into public health and, and clinical training. Uh, the challenge is that there aren't enough spots in a lot of medical schools to, to really accommodate everyone. And so there's a supply and demand problem. That's a problem that's even more magnified globally, as you know. I, I'm curious, like, does your platform-based approach feel like a good answer for that? Absolutely. And so if you take a look at the school that I'm, I now run in Jamaica, I serve as executive dean, it's a capacity building school. Um, it is private, but it's got a government charter, which gives us the capability to train our students clinically in all the government chartered schools. They're effectively, if they get through our program, they're effectively guaranteed residencies and jobs. So it's not, you know, they don't have to rely on leaving the country to get their clinical training. It's got a very nominal tuition. We have a basic science faculty for the first two years that numbers about 12 or so. The school based in Samoa, again, was started at a fraction of the cost. And, and I believe the whole educational model could be rethought. There's a lot of extra cost that has traditionally been built in, as you say, great centers that people travel to. I believe that if we disseminate the information, we organize it through a, a platform-based approach and have centers of training in communities, we can have a more diverse, inclusive system, a less expensive system. And, and the same principles actually apply at the, the residency and the training level. I presently still do some heart surgery, mostly in an oversight capacity, but I help in a, in a rural hospital that doesn't have a residency, but with the proper academic supports, the proper didactic supports, I think many hospitals could potentially add training programs to them. So I think we need to rethink the whole process, how it's done, 
and where it's done. And I would contend we will do it better and more cost effectively. A lot of times in business, there's sort of um, cost, quality, and speed, this triangle of, of things. And they say, you know, you can get two, but not three of them. Uh, the way you describe this, it, it certainly feels like you're getting higher quality, you know, get people uh, trained up faster, potentially, and more efficiently, and that it's uh, cheaper. And so I'm just curious, like, given what you've said, what are the biggest obstacles to broadening the adoption of this approach? And, and what are the things that you hear when you when you pitch this to other medical educators? Well, you know, I still, and I, and I won't attribute this to anyone in particular, but um, is the concept, well, you know, we're already good enough, so why do we need to change? And I guess to me, I was trained you know, to think beyond that, it's one of the things that I thought was exciting about heart surgery is that conventional medical treatments weren't good enough, um, you know, for people with advanced valvular failure or advanced coronary disease. So we figured out ways to fix those things. I think we can take the same approach in education, but we've got to push people out of their comfort zone. And I hope some of the good, as you know, good has often come out of pandemics, um, ultimately in terms of restructuring. And I hope some of the good that comes will be a re-envisioning of the medical education process. And you know, having pushed people out of their comfort zones, I hope they're willing to stay there for long enough to see the added benefits. You've worked in a few different countries professionally. And I'm just curious, as we're now I won't say we're coming out of COVID, but we're at a better place with COVID than we were six months ago with more vaccinated in the U.S. and around the world. What do you think have been the kind of key things that it's revealed about our global healthcare system? And what are some key steps you think we could take to strengthen our healthcare system, both here and in some of the other healthcare systems you've, you've been a part of? And I'd like, if I could, take the liberty to have sort of two components to that, because I view medical education as intrinsically, and, and if it isn't, it should be intrinsically a part of our healthcare system. You know, we are all trained and told that we're continual students and lifelong learners. And I think that's very important. And I think education was really revealed in my mind, is being largely deficient. Many places closed down, you know, struggled with the pandemic and, and the uncertainty of change. It did not, in my mind, react quickly. We were very fortunate in my school in Jamaica that we were already platform-based. All our exams were already online. You know, we made the transition well before the, the pandemic. One of my senior professors even quipped, asked if I didn't release the virus to prove why we had to do everything we did at Ames. And I told him for sure not. But um, I'm actually very proud of the hospitals that I was associated with in Maryland, how they dealt with the pandemic. I think healthcare itself did a phenomenal job at rising to the occasion. You know, I work every weekend helping on the heart surgery service. So I'm, I'm still, you know, remain actively involved and was very impressed. Globally, you know, many of my students in Jamaica are from India and it's so tragic to see what's going on there. And, and in some ways tragic when we had the resurgence, you know, over the winter, obviously there was a lot of life lost. We would have not wanted to, but 
as I score it, education took the biggest hit and needs, you know, hopefully had the biggest wake up call. Our, our scientists were brilliant in developing vaccines in record time. I think our science groups were, were terrific. And I think our healthcare systems learned from it, but really cope quite well. And globally, you know, the more we educate, the more we advance systems, the more we disseminate educational methodologies, um, we will help the whole world cope better going forward. So this really is a global initiative. I uh, thank you for pointing out the the tragedy uh, that's unfolding and has happened in, in India and many parts of the world. I think it's easy to kind of lose sight of that, especially in the U.S. because of the fact that things have gotten better here. But you know, like many things, there's huge disparity. We have a lot of students, early healthcare professionals in our audience. What is your advice to them about meeting the challenge of the moment and approaching their career in healthcare? And I, and I say that specifically kind of reflecting back on your own career. You know, you're practicing medicine in the U.S. and you, you opted to branch off and go abroad. And I'm just curious, what led you to make that decision and, and what sort of things did you think about as you were kind of choosing that path for yourself? Excellent question. Um, I think the key is resilience. And, you know, that's a factor to the whole issue that's getting a lot of attention now for well-being. I believe you all have addressed it. I'm, I do a series of uh, webinars as well, as you probably know, on both learning science and actually have one coming up on, on well-being and being able to be resilient and realize that whatever comes at you, there will be, you know, it's like that exam you're very afraid of or you're, you're preparing, it, it will come, it'll pass. Um, have a broad perspective and look for openings. Um, on a personal note, though it was serendipity that I was asked to be involved with this program, I also realized at that time after having practiced heart surgery for about 20, 25 years and seeing some of my senior partners retired in their early 60s, not knowing what to do, um, have found an area that I can focus on, hopefully till uh, I'm on the other side of the grass and, uh, you know, can really continue to apply myself and not have to be taking care of dissections at two, three in the morning. And so I think be resilient, be open-minded. Um, when I was a resident, uh, we were right in the throes of the HIV epidemic. And that was really scary. Nobody, you know, you, it, was, it was almost 100% fatal um, and had co-residents, you know, die, especially in surgery, if you cut yourself and the like. And, and, and yet we got beyond that. It's a disease that hasn't been conquered yet, but there've been a lot of advances. So whatever comes your way, don't let it get you down. Always be looking for other openings and opportunities and, and find things that uh, you can be passionate about and follow your passion. Well, that's a, a wonderful way to close things out. Uh, it certainly seems like you've followed your passion and led you to pretty amazing places, uh, both professionally, but also geographically as well. Well, it's, it's been fun and it's been helpful, actually, the technology. You know, I went to Samoa a handful of times in person, but almost daily electronically. And it's something I couldn't have conceived of, you know, when I was in medical school. So I'll tell the students now, just hang on to your hats. I mean, you know, whether you're going to be beaming somewhere or you're going to be sending your, your hologram somewhere or just know, you know, you've got to have a knowledge base. You've got to be well-founded. 
I remain a practitioner. I remain patient-centric and you know, never forget why you're in medicine to help others. But there are lots of different ways to do that. Well, listen, um, that's phenomenal advice. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. I'm Rishi Desai. Thank you for joining today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.